word. We sung truth, Lord. We fellowshiped. Uh, we've enjoyed a conversation around the things of you. And now, Lord, we turn to your conversation to us. What does the Bible have to say? What does the word of God, the infallible, perfect, inerrant word have to say to us? Lord, there's nothing greater we can listen to today than this. So, Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, you would challenge us, you would cause us to think about our view of Scripture, about our view of a triune God, about our view of the gifting that he uniquely gives each and every individual who's a believer. And may we look onto our own hearts and see how we take that in, how we take that truth and allow it to change us and cause us to live for you. Lord, we ask you to do that today, even now. Lord, we thank you for all those that are gathered here, but we do thank you for those who couldn't come. Members of our church who are home and not well or in hospitals or recovering. Our hearts go out to them. We miss them. They're a part of us, Lord. And when they're gone, we, we, we want them to be with us. And so we, we ask you, Lord, that you would show your tender care to them. You would be kind to them and show your mercy, Lord. You are a God of comfort. We pray for their caretakers, Lord. So many have husbands or wives or family members who are watching over them and caring for their every need, Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen them just as much, Lord. Lord, now, as we turn to your word, may you be blessed by what we say now and how we handle it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began our study into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, really as a study through 12 through 14. Paul has been working his way up to this and uh, he has been answering questions all along. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 12, he uses that phrase that he's used several times now, now concerning. So he's answering questions. They have written him questions on certain subjects. He is responding to these questions. He is certainly uh, known of their struggles. He was there. He's the founding pastor uh, he was there for a year and a half. He has sent some of his best people back in to this church. And yet, because of selfish desires, desires to misuse what God had given them, the church is now in disarray. And it's going through many, many struggles. In fact, the way of introduction, we talked about this last week a little bit, that we see the early root of prosperity gospel in the Corinth church. It had begun to take root and there were problems. They were using their gifts not in the way God intended them. In fact, they were using their gifts in such a way that it was causing division, not unity. And that was never God's goal. One of the problems is man loves to look at natural abilities and think that they're gifts from the Spirit. How many of you have ever heard, boy, if that person would just get saved, oh man, they could just have such a huge impact on Christianity or the world or whatever. Well, where are they? <laughs> and when those people do get saved, which sometimes doesn't seem they do, they often don't step into roles of, of uh, places where God uses those natural gifts. And it's a problem, right? Sometimes people will see somebody who has a natural gift to do something and they say, well, you should be doing this, and they shove them towards that. Hey, the Holy Spirit has gifts, as we'll see over the coming weeks, that are to be used for his glory. And the reason you know they're used for his glory is because they bring unity together and they don't exalt the person. And this is what was the problem here. Corinth was 
relying on natural abilities in a lot of ways. They were relying on what maybe even were fleshly desires. And all of this caused the quenching of the work of the Spirit, and they were destroying the unity of the church. Worldly wisdom was the norm. They didn't want Paul's preaching. They, they wanted worldly wisdom. That was big to them. We saw that in the first couple of chapters. There was factions among them. And so this Spirit-inspired, Christ-centered spirituality that Paul is talking about here was really not their desires at all, and it was fading away in the church. Well, that's what chapter 12 through 14 is about. It's one of the most clearest passages that we have in the Bible on the use of, first and foremost, spirituality. And that's what we dealt with this last week, what's true spirituality. And then the use of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And this was given to them as a blessing, not a problem. Now, remember, we said this last week, that 1 Corinthians uh, is not a book so much of doctrine, like we would look to some of, them, some of the other books. It is a book of rebuke in many cases. This church was a problem. Much of the charismatic church of today has glommed on it, particularly chapter 12 through 14, and it has become their book of doctrine. They have not handled it right. They have not exegetic the text right. And so they now, instead of seeing this as a rebuke, they use this as a springboard to create more very self-centered uh, gifts and worships and so forth. So last week, Paul wanted the church in Corinth to have a, a true knowledge and a desire of what spirituality was. And we spent our whole time, as you recall, in that first point, just trying to get our minds around what he was talking about. What, what is true spirituality? Remember, there's a group that's seeking questions here. They're, they're, they're asking, and, and they've been asking about worship. We saw that in chapter 11. They wanted to know what worship, so Paul starts with gender right now. He wants to understand gender right off the bat, how you were to come to God, and we have all the head coverings and all that. So people were, are very confused about it sometimes. But that was about worship. He leads us into the Lord's table. That is about worship. And now he moves to spiritual gifts, and he begins to answer their questions, which, again, is the subject of worship. If we use our gifts, and everyone has one, we're going to get into that here in the coming weeks. The Bible is clear. The Spirit says he gives every believer. If you're a believer in here, God has given you a gift to be used for his glory and for unity of the church. But every one of those is about worship. It is not about drawing attention to ourselves uh, having a, a large group that follows you or whatever else that may come of that, it is about worship, and that's Paul's theme. And this is why he uses the word spirituality or spiritual here. You notice that in verse 1 there. And I told you I believe this, verse, this term really stands alone. We add the word gift because of the context that it's set in. But this word spiritual is a good word. It, it speaks of who we are. It speaks of what we believe. It speaks of what we live by, what we understand, what's, what's our motivation. We're spiritual people when we allow the Holy Spirit not to be quenched and Him to shine the life of Christ into our lives and the truth of God's Word, and we're sold out for those things for His glory and for the betterment of the church. That's true spirituality. And again, this was what was missing. As we've seen in the book of Corinthians... They had an outward desire for spirituality. They, they wanted oratorical perfection. That's why Paul's voice, they said, was contemptible to them. See, they wanted what the world had. They, they wanted the fanfare and all that comes with it. 
And because of that, they found themselves in all kinds of factions. I am a Paul, I'm a Peter, I'm a Apollos, and so forth, right? And so the apostle is making major challenges to correct them. I think Paul also knew that the Holy Spirit um, was the giver of gifts. He certainly understood that. He knew his own gifting was not tied to his natural abilities. He knew that the Spirit had given him gifts. And he endows every believer with certain gifts to glorify God so they have joy and for the good of the body of Christ, right? But when those desires, and this is what he's really after, become self-exalting, human-focused, after perfection before people, the understanding of God and his goals is quickly marred and lost. And that's where this church ended up. Last week we took a a bit of a jaunt through several passages. And I just want to remind you, I thought deeply about these passages again. One was in Ephesians 5, and it starts with us being imitators of Christ. Say, Pastor, I, I really do want to be a spiritual person. A true spirit-filled person. Remember, when we talk about spirit feeling, we have to be careful of that term. At, at the time of salvation, every person is endowed with the Holy Spirit. That's the mark that you're saved. And yet, the Bible tells us that we can quench him. And I think that's what's gone on in the church in Corinth individually. And so, when we talk about being a spirit-filled person, we're talking about allowing the spirit to fulfill his purposes through us. And so we looked at first, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, and there it starts with this imitating of Christ. And, and he walked all the way through what that looks like and what that doesn't look like. And then he lands with, this is what it looks like in marriage, wives and husbands and children, and even into employees or slaves or employers or masters to show what this looks like. There is a true, listen, brothers and sisters, there's a true spirituality that should grip the believer in Jesus Christ. It should be a mark of who we are. We love our Savior and His Word. And let me say this. That's what dominates the direction of this church. And there's something you like about Riverbend. That's it. <laughs> Everything else will fade away, right? There will always be a better preacher, a better singer, or better this, better that, and all those things. But what holds the church, to unifies the church, and brings us to where we glorify God is a devoted love to the Son and His Word. And that's why we work so hard at this. We study so deeply to be ready to expound on these truths. Paul even told him in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Yeah, pursue love, but yet desire earnestly spirituality. Do you see that? Desire earnestly spirituality. Desire the things of God. And the problem was the Corinth church didn't desire the things the Spirit desires. And it's such a good question. I've asked myself that Several times have I studied this. Scott, where are the areas where you drop out of not desiring what the Spirit desires? Because if you if you'll examine that, you'll find your problem. Because the Spirit and the Word never in conflict. The Spirit and Christ are never in conflict. The Spirit and God the Father are never in conflict. And when we examine where we've quenched the Spirit in some area, where we want our will more than what the Bible says, what the Spirit is doing, we will find our spiritual difficulties. Does that make sense? Have you thought, can you think through that with me? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to say, Lord, are there areas in my life where I quench you? I clearly set the spirit aside and I move forward with what I want, even in maybe good things, ministry things. And this is what had happened 
because the Spirit had been quenched. And think what goes quenched. Just think about this. We looked at this quickly last week. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Right away, when we quench the work of the Spirit, love does not get portrayed and lived out the way God intended it to be. And now run that through your marriage, run that through the membership of our church, run that through any grid. And you go, oh, Scott, you're right. That exposes some weaknesses in my life. You can take on the next one, joy. If I quench the spirit, I lose my joy, don't I? Many times I've prayed in my own personal life, Lord, I want my joy back. I know what's stolen it. I know it's self-centeredness or will of my own where I've quenched the spirit in some way and I've lost my joy. Are you in here this morning and you've lost your joy? Somewhere along the line, you've quenched the spirit of God. You've not let him give you his joy. (laughs) Joy unspeakable. You've not let him shine Christ into this area in your life to give you joy. You've lost that. And look, for the sake of time, you can work through each one of these peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control above which the law can never produce is only produced by the Spirit of God. You can work through every one of those and say, oh, Scott, I now understand what spirituality really is. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to shine into our life, allowing him to function and go beyond just mere human power or human abilities, allowing the Spirit of God to exalt Christ in his word. It's better than any any man-made gift or, or even unsaved person could ever come up with is when you let the Spirit of God just have you, just have his way with you. And you find all that truth in the word of God. One last passage that struck me. Tom uh, Sheehan led our devotions in um, our staff meeting this week, and he took us back to Ephesians 4. I want to just point something out, and there's a couple of things I'll refer back to. I think I said these things, but it just struck me as I heard somebody else say them this week. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 is where I want to go back. Because remember, we're talking about spirituality. How does that come? And one of the ways that it comes is God gifts the church He gifts the church. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He, that's God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, you don't divide them, gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. He gave some as evangelists. And he gave some as pastors and teachers. Now, there's, I love this passage because it gathers in the, the leaders of the early church, but it also gathers in the leaders of the present-day church, right, today. Uh, apostles died out with the 12, and prophets died out as the word of God became complete. The canon was finished. Evangelists still are mighty work today. Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. He was pastoring the church in Ephesus, but he's due to the work of evangelists, so that's still there. And then there's this pastor-teacher. These are these shepherds that proclaim and teach and instruct God's word. Now, let's look at what their goal is here as we pursue true spirituality. For the equipping of the saints, excuse me, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the goal here, right? That's spirituality in a unified sense. But look at this next verse. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now look at this phrase. To a mature man. Now what sticks out to you? 
It's singular, isn't it? The church is looked at as a singular group. This is, this is not the world of individualism. When you come into this building, when you participate with the body of Christ, this is not about individuals. The goal of all of the labor, the goal of the gifting of God to give teachers and leaders and evangelists for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service is all about the unity of the faith, maturing of a single man, a single body. This is why we don't have separate ministries. My ministry affects the ministries of the other elders. Their ministry affects mine. We are all intertwined. My ministry is tied into you, and your ministry is tied into me. We're all intertwined together, and Paul is going to show this beautifully in the, in the display of the body in 1 Corinthians 12. And so there's this key to unity and oneness. And some people say, Pastor, why do I struggle so much? Why is it so hard to walk with the Lord? One of the reasons is you don't pursue unity. You don't pursue it in your marriage. And if you're not pursuing it in your marriage, you're probably not pursuing it in the church. See, that's what brings spirituality about. One of the aspects that spirit does is he brings us together in one accord. So we're arms swinging, legs running, eyes looking forward, all on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, all on the person of Christ, and we move together as one. But this was a terrible problem within the Corinth church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Asephus, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. They were so divided. And guess what? The enemy is just waiting for that. Bring division to a church, to whatever, Satan waits for that. And so we must be careful of that. So true spirituality is those people who are uh, dying to self, allowing the spirit to spotlight Christ in his word uh, in our hearts constantly. Doesn't mean perfectly, right? We're, our, our graph may have some dips in it, right? Because we are fleshly at times, and, but we're quick to repent. That is a spiritual person. And this is what Paul was trying to set up before he ever gets this. Now, I want to look at the second point from last week, or first point today, uh, to, to try to show the difference here. And, and, and look, the goal of the evil one, <laughs> the goal of the evil one was being accomplished in Corinth. Separation, division. No unity. And so look at this next point. The spirit that works in the sons of disobedience through paganism and experientialism. That's what he's trying to do. Now, for, so you understand why I spend so much time on just a few verses here. Uh, have, you, have you ever come up and asked the pastor a question and you, you're just looking for the short answer? But you don't get it. <laughs> we'll say, hmm... Well, let me start with this. <laughs> and I think that's what Paul's doing here. I think that's exactly what's happening in this passage. They are wanting, oh, you know, Pastor Paul, we, we want to figure out how to use these gifts properly. We, we see that there's some little bit of division in our church, and we're trying to correct this. <laughs> well, Paul knew that they were full of pride. They most likely were looking for a little bit of help. They might even been patronizing him in some way, but Paul is going to give them the truth and the whole truth. And that's why he spends three full chapters, 12, 13, and 14, on this issue. And because it reveals uh, so quickly the spiritual deficiencies they had, the blatant paganism that had made its way into the church, and as 
Corinth, it had wormed its way right into its leadership. So often people will catch me and they'll want to talk about some issue in their life, their marriage, their children, their work, or something like that. And, and maybe it's been years of trouble. Years. And they think maybe you have one answer. You can just give them, and then, man, they swallow that baby, and everything's good. It, you know, sometimes there's just a massive unraveling of years of disobedience to God's word. And so there's often isn't short-term solutions to long-term problems, and I think this is the problem. So he's starting to unpack in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this long-term problem that has led to all kinds of uh, godless things within the church. Now, notice that Paul starts to address them in uh, a phrase in verse 2 that really catches your attention. He says, you know that when you were pagans... You know that when you were pagans. So Paul here is starting to get to the point. He's starting to show, look, we know that there's a spirit that works within the sons of disobedience, right? Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2, inspired by God. Verse 1, he says, you're dead in your sins. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of this air. And then he says this, of the spirit, now listen to this little word here, that is now at work. In the sons of disobedience. It's now at work. See, Paul knows that's what the, the spirit world does. It works in the sons of disobedience. So though this first, second verse here in this text, verse 2, may seem short, it describes an urgency. It's, it's, it's alarm going off. Notice he says, look, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. It, it, there's alarm going off here. There's a problem. And Paul's seeking to expose the difference between this pagan world of religion and what the true church is and where there's been integration to that. And that's the problem in Corinth and in today's church. There's integration of a pagan world with a, with a, a people set apart by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's an integration that comes and these problems come with these things. And so Paul says, look, your experimentalism and, and of the pagan world has nothing connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. And what they experienced in their worship before they were saved as uh, worshiping these false gods and all the festivals and all the feasts and all the practices, it cannot be equated with the Spirit of God. And thus it is true with us. The things that the world does, it cannot be equated with the work of the Spirit. And we must fight against this, brothers and sisters. Now, notice the term pagan, or your Bible may say the word Gentile. Pagan is the better uh, translated word there. Um, it, it's in reference to two things, I think, what he's doing here. First, that they were, um, when they were not Christians, that's what they were. So I like it. There's clarity. You're either a Christian or you're a pagan. Now, some people may not like that term, right? You're one or the other. You, you either belong to Christ or you don't. You you're belong to the one who works in the sons of uh, disobedience or you belong to the one who saved you and rescued you, adopted you, and made you his own child. It's either one or the other. There's no, there's no DMZ zone right in the middle, right? There's no middle ground here. So this word pagan describes what you were before you were a Christian. And he's describing this to the Corinth church. Secondly, it also relates to the fact that they were non-Jews. 
And I think that's important because as a non-Jew here, particularly as a saved Christian, they are no longer under the law. They're under grace, so they must understand that as well. Remember, there's Jews in this church as well. Now, don't, understand, don't, don't underestimate the power of this word pagan. It's a, it's a powerful word. And Paul's working on a, a real stark difference here. He's setting up an understanding who's saved and who isn't. And Paul has already described demonic behavior in the pagan world. Remember chapter 10, verse 20, if you just look over at that real quick. He said this when it came down to their behavior. He said, no, but I say that the things which the pagans sacrifice, Gentile, there's our word again, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And then he says this, I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So Paul's aware that this demonic behavior of the pagan world is trying to make its way into the church. And it's coming, listen, it's coming in the form of gifts, prophecies, tongues, all those type of things. And I hope you stick with me through this. And those who are watching online, I know there's people watching what we're teaching on this right now. But I want you to understand, these are all connected. And we, that's why we teach expositorily. We don't, we don't jump around and teach topically. We stick in a text because that's how we understand what God's word has to say. So hang with us. Now, there is a connection between the demonic world and paganism, right? We know that. We see it every day. We can watch it on TV. We can see it in the world. And, um, and, and it's often subjective to confusing experiences, Right? Uh, experiential behavior really uh, it comes with what happens in the demonic world. And so the Corinthians, when they were still pagans, they were subject to this demonic world. And Paul knew that they had had some very confusing experiences. And he wants to straighten that out. And we know Paul, look, he had an unwavering uh, set of beliefs, right? Uh, in his instruction that demonic pagan behavior was not part of the Christian life. And Paul had witnessed demonic behavior. He had seen it, right? He knew it. Look with me at Acts chapter 16. I want you to see this. And remember this, that Paul knew that even in demonic behavior, people who were indwelled with it, they, they, you couldn't always tell. They, they may have done things that seemed inspirational at one time. Go to Acts 16 with me. This is what lands Paul and Silas in jail. Look at verse 14. We'll start there just to find the context. A woman named Lydia from Thyatira. She's a seller of purple. Look at this in verse 14. She's a worshiper of God. Whoa, wait a minute. This is a Christian. No, it's not. This is a religious person. This is someone from Judaism or, or some, some other aspect of uh, that's not Christian, but... There, she's a worshiper of God. And you know, he goes, Scott, well, how do you know that, Scott? Well, look at the rest of the verse. She was listening. Look at this. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things Paul had been speaking. She, she was a religious person, and yet God saved her. Verse 15, she brought her to her, their house. She was baptized. She was identified in Christ. She wouldn't have been baptized and identified in Christ if she hadn't been saved. And so we know she gets saved, and she urges them to stay. And, and, and look, she wants to be in the ministry, and maybe she's part of the birth of the Philippi church. But right after that, we get into an incident that's very insightful when we start to understand the pagan world and the religious world, right? Verse 16, and it happened as they were going to the place of prayer... That's got to be noted, right? 
a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. Now, Luke's using plural terms because Luke's writing this. He's with, he's with Paul and Silas, who was bringing her master much profit from fortune-telling. Oh, imagine that. An experiential movement that brings lots of money, jets, massive incomes. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 17. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these are wicked people. No, that's not what she says. Look at this. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, right there, brothers and sisters, you start to go, here's a demonically possessed little girl managed by some wicked men, and there's truth coming out of her voice, isn't there? Is there anything wrong with that statement per se if you just held it? These men, Paul and Silas and Luke, are bond servants. They're, they're lifetime servants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming the way of salvation to you. Pretty truthful, isn't it? Look, brothers and sisters, there's a group out there that calls themselves Christians who uses the Bible, proclaims truth, and pulls all of the intention away from God in the end and puts it on themselves because of their gifting. This is what happens. Look what goes on. This is a powerful passage. 18, she continued doing this for many days. This isn't just a root one time. This is happening over and over. But Paul was greatly annoyed. I like that. He's ticked off. Demons don't give God glory. And he knows it. And he knows this isn't to be allowed. And so he turns and said to the small s spirit, because this isn't the big s spirit. This is the small one. This is someone that is demonic. This is someone who, who Satan is using for his own purposes, right? And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. Was she talking about salvation and all that stuff? No, the authority of Jesus Christ over them come out of her. And it came out of her at once, right? At that very moment. Now, when you hit people who are after money, instead of the true working of the Spirit of God, things really get serious, don't they? Look at verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept, to observe, being Romans. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what was going on at all. What was going on is they recognized that you were working in league with Satan himself and his followers. They took care of that, proclaimed the truth of Jesus Christ, and now you lost your prophet. And so you bring up false accusations. And so, look, we begin to understand that this, I mean, this little girl seemed like in her right mind, right? These guys are letting her do this. It all sounds good. And yet Paul shows that it's a lie and and look, Paul was so deeply concerned with the Christians at the Corinth church that they've grabbed onto some experimentalism, uh, holding on to some kind of wow factor of what was going on, that demonic behavior could be pressing in on them. And they're misunderstood. Notice, notice the word mute idols in verse 2. Again, I may not get very far today. 
but we're, we're building a good case, aren't we? Because I'm telling you, too many people jump right into the heart of uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14 and don't understand what it means. So we have to build a case here. So look at this word mute idols. It's interesting that uh, this is brought up. Some of your translations may say dumb idols. It's an interesting word. And it simply is referring to a block of wood or a stone that was covered with some precious metal. Uh, they're called mute or dumb. And the reason he says this and the reason they're called this is because they're voiceless, mindless, motionless. They're inanimate in a sense. And they could and did not have any powers. And yet, before the Corinthians were Christians, this had great and profound effect on them. And it always has. I don't know if you've traveled much, but you get into countries where there are still idols and people falling down in front of them or cutting themselves in front of idols in some kind of way. It's mind-blowing. You're going like, that's a rock. <laughs> I've seen it firsthand. And it's always been around. Listen, just listen to this passage for time for sake of going there. Psalms 115, 1 through 8. I love this text. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. The psalmist just starts out. We actually don't know who wrote the psalm, but whoever it is starts out and says, not, not to us. Glory is not for us. It is to your name. He's making a clear distinction between those who are followers of the God of Israel and, the, and those who are not. But then he says, why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. He's making a great distinction between theirs, right? Then he says there, then he says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, and they cannot see. They have ears, and they cannot hear. They have noses, and they cannot smell. They have hands, and they cannot feel. They have feet, and they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Now listen to this. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. I mean, isn't that what the power of, of the flesh and the mixed with the spirit world can make somebody think that an idol, whether it makes a noise because you turn the volume up on it or not, is irrelevant here, that you would bow down before something like that? The Bible says God does whatever he pleases. These things do nothing. And yet, and yet, this is what the world was around. He says, look, you used to, you, when you were pagans, you were led astray by dumb, mute idols. There's no spirit involved in this, right? This is just purely hoping you're going to get something, right? I mean, the whole lottery system is an idol, isn't it? People will bow down before that thing, hoping, hoping that that little ticket will save them. From all their problems. I mean, you just go on, right? Athletes, musicians, you can idolize a person. I mean, so much of this is, is so relevant. And yet you go, Scott, you know, I'm, I'm not caught up in that. Well, the people of God were. The people who claimed to be God's people gave everything to idols in the Old Testament, even their babies. Listen to Habakkuk. He was a what we call a minor prophet just to the size of the book, but he was a prophet during Daniel and Ezekiel's time. He said this, what profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker, listen to this, trust in his own handiwork. When you bow down to an idol, when you pick an idol, you are bowing down to something that 
is relationship to you in some way. Not, not something God has done, not God in that he, is, he does not need us, he does as he pleads, he's perfectly independent of man, he has no dependency upon us. You're, you're becoming dependent upon something that's dependent upon you. And he says, look, they fashioned them, these speechless idols. But he says this, Woe to him who has said to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, now he makes a great distinction here, but the Lord it is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What great application for our families, right? What a great application to be, uh, to be silent before the things of God versus always having to be the centerpiece. And that was the problem with Corinth. It is the problem today. Pretty soon they're throwing fastball, Holy Spirit fastballs at people. They're claiming this and claiming that and telling Satan they have this over him and, and all that drawing attention to themselves just in order to line their own pockets. And so the Apostle Paul here is using verse 2 to clearly state their ungodly experiences should be distinguishing, be very distinguishable from God's righteous work of his Holy Spirit. And that's what we're not seeing. You know, Scott, how do you know all this? Well, just look at the verse. It says, you were led astray. This is what happens, right? And that's the purpose of demons. That's, that's their goals, right? They appeal to the flesh. They use experimentalism to, to lead people away. And look, Satan and his followers, you would have to know this. They're never leading you to Jesus. <laughs> That's not the goal. The goal is to lead you away. When you come out of some of these great movements and stuff that's going, their goal is not Christ and his glory. It's all about themselves, men wearing nine, $15,000 suits, flying on millions of dollar jets, pour, money pouring in. Because they're not leading people to Christ. They're leading people to him. And look, you can see it. It's, it leads you to self. This is what he's talking about. You are led astray. You're led to self. This is what demonic worship does. This is what these things do. You're led to self-empowerment. You're led to anything that will turn you from Christ. You're led to anything that's counterfeit. And look, counterfeit can be very real, right? There's all kinds of counterfeit things out there, not just bills. Counterfeit paintings, counterfeit all kinds of things that are counterfeit. And this is what it does. It's just one, real quickly, this word led is interesting. I got digging around on this imperfect verb. It's a, what we call a progressive descriptive imperfect verb. And you say, well, what does that mean, Scott? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> when we get to these type of verbs, we know that this, there's this, it means there's an ongoing effectiveness through a vi vividness. It's something that's happened in, in the past, but it's ongoing, it's, it's effective, and it's very vivid very alive to people. And I think that's what's happening today in so much of the charismatic world. I think it was happening in the Corinth world. And the pagans have often, they went into their temples, they were led by evil powers, they saw amazing things, there were tongues and all kinds of prophecies going on in Corinth. Corinth was the center of all that stuff. And they stumbled around in the darkness until the day God took them from Satan's family and set them free. But that's how they used to live. And, and Paul said, that's not part of his church today. Don't let it near it. So Paul's making this 
crystal, uh, crystal clear here in his opening verses. There's no place for that type of behavior in the household of God. One more cross-reference I want to give you before I get to my next point is Romans chapter 8. So always think, okay, so that's the spirit of demonic behavior. What's the spirit of Christ? Verse 12, Romans 8, verse 12. I love this passage. So then, brethren, that's all men, women, children who are saved, people who make up the church of Christ. We are under obligation, look at this, not to the flesh. I love that. I, I read this verse often because it tells me, Scott, you don't have to do what your flesh wants you to do. It no longer has the full authority over your life like it used to. You're not under obligation to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. It's a real difference between the saved and the unsaved. If you're still controlled completely by your flesh and it just says, hey, we're going this way, we're going to drink this, eat that, smoke that, do this, think that, controls you in every way, you're not a Christian. You're just not. You're still a fleshly person with some religious experiences. And that's probably what was going on in many people's life in Corinth. But, look at the middle of verse 13. Love the conjunction, right? Right? Paul doesn't leave us all dead out there. <laughs> it has got good news for us. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Can I get an Amen. I mean, isn't that good news? This death in the first half of this birth is eternal death. It's hell. It's God's full wrath on you for all of existence for eternity. This is God's love and family and adoption and his love forever. This, this unity with him, not only on this earth, but forever. That's the difference between living according to your flesh or living according to the spirit. There's a massive difference. And it's a mark of a Christian, brothers and sisters. It's those who know him and those who don't. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Man, that's good news. You have to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. And he dwells you because he bought you. He owns you. And he seals you, according to Ephesians chapter 1, with the Spirit of God. He, God marks us. He guarantees, the Bible says, our inheritance. Isn't that beautiful? And so I don't have to live to my flesh anymore. Yes, I do at times, right? Do you? Sometimes we live to our flesh, but we don't have to. You're free from that. Look at verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. These guys that teach loss of salvation... They don't believe in the power of God, do they? If God saves you, he saves you. He gives you his spirit. And now there's this great battle within you. You don't, you don't live according to the flesh all the time, right? You may give in, but there's a war going on between the spirit and the flesh, right? You know there's a battle and you, you confess your sins, right? Because he's faithful and just to forgive you. You know that. Verse 15 tells us, look, he didn't give us into this battle of slavery again. That's a mark of an unsaved person. Well, they had some religious experience, but now they're right back to slavery again. What kind of experience is that? A false one. And see, look, 
for a long time, even conservative churches did a lot of altar calls and made people sorrow and did all this stuff. And they went right back to slavery, didn't they? Because it wasn't God who saved him. It was man that tried to save him. And that's why we teach the doctrines of grace. We believe that God saves and he transforms, right? What, what kind of powerful God we have that can't transform your life? And, and not just your public life, but more importantly, what? Your private life. And so, look, he says, if you do not receive the spirit of slavery, again, leading again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. God took me from the enemy's family. He wiped out my past as though it doesn't exist, made me a child of the king as though I've always been his child, giving me full inheritance to everything that Christ has. This is the work of the spirit, not the work of the flesh. I'm no longer a slave, brother, sister. You're not a slave. You're a daughter. You're a son of the king. And this makes us cry out, Abba, Father. This is an enduring term. This is personal. I was speaking to a Catholic not too long ago, and and they were telling me that they went to a Christian service and it was so different. I said, well, what made it different? They said, I don't know. It was, I just don't understand. And so I started poking around and, and I, I gave some suggestions. And she says, yeah, they did that. And I said, well, did they do this? And yeah, yeah, yeah. They sing together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did somebody teach the Bible? Yeah, they did. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Did you see people interacting in a way that you could see that they had something? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Would you call it a personal versus more of a corporate relationship with God? And she said to me, she goes, that's it. Those people had a personal relationship with God versus a corporate. See, that's what religion does. Religion just kind of gathers you into a, a loose group, do as you want, you know, do a few of these, a few of those deep knee bends or whatever, a few of that kind of stuff. Um, get you all kind of gathered together, help you feel like, hey, it's going to be all right, and kind of move you along, right? Christianity is very, very personal. Because God took you from the enemy and made you his child. And he paid everything that needed to be paid in order to do that. That warms my soul. I I'm a son of the king, not because of anything I did, but because my king came and rescued me and made me his child. And see, so you see such a difference here. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Is that happening in your life? <laughs> Does the spirit of God remind you you belong to him? You've been bought with a price. When you hear a message like this preached and you hear me with the gospel, you know I get excited, right? You hear it and you go, yeah, pastor, that's me. <laughs> oh, that's the Spirit testifying, not me. Scott's just up here having a ball doing this. That's the Spirit of God saying, he saved me. And I belong to him and I'm sealed and I have an inheritance that cannot be taken away. Notice verse 17, and if children, heirs also. Whoa, it gets better. I'm no longer a slave to fear and sin, but now I'm what, an, an inheritor? Uh, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of cowboys through the years going, Pastor, man, I just, just like I sit on the back row of this little old church, I'll be happy just to kind of slide in the, the back door of heaven. 
And I right there quickly show them that that is errant thinking. Just as today, in the church today, there is no one greater or lesser in the church. We are all his children. And look at, we are not only just heirs, we're heirs of God. Uh Uh-oh, look at this one. Fellow heirs with Christ. Now, we know inheritance, right? Families love to blow up over this stuff, right? Inheritance the state, the trust, and all of that, it gets divided, it should be. Uh, we don't do things like God does it. But we divide it up equally, and here the Bible is saying is what he's given the son, he's given us. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? The Bible says fellow or joint or equal heir with Christ. And you say, well, how do I know that? Will you suffer with him? See, it says, if, if you suffer with him so that we may also be glorified. The word if could be since, since we indeed suffer with him. Do you suffer for the gospel? Do you stand against those who oppose it at times, gently, humbly speaking the truth in love? I mean, do you suffer for the gospel? Have you lost something for the sake of the gospel? I mean, we probably have all lost things. I lost friends, family members. I mean, I, there's a whole list of things we give up, right? Because we follow Jesus. It's a mark of a spirit-led person. We're, we're, we're not so consumed with what people think of us. We're ready to die to all of that and follow Jesus. This is what he does for us, doesn't he? As you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think this statement here that how you were led would also apply to Jews. Galatians 5.18 says, but you were led by the spirit. You're not under the law. So even if they were Jews there and they wanted to fall back onto religiosity, now this is a problem with us too, right? We can be religiously lost people. He says the difference between a man or a woman who came out of Judaism, the difference between them is now they're filled by the Spirit and they're under grace, not the law. Yikes. Um, let's stop. Have you had enough? Your plate full? I want you to digest this stuff, right? Uh, I'm having a ball in this. I'm inching my way along. Um, I don't want to apologize, but I do. I mean, I think sometimes everybody wants me to get through so much. Uh, as I study this, my, my heart is just filled with joy. Because it helps us understand there is a real difference in the church today, or what's called the church today. The Bible clearly tells us that in the latter days, there will be many who will come and bring deception. There's many bringing deception. There are false Christs. There are antichrists. John says the antichrist. there's many antichrists, and they're in the world today. And an antichrist looks like Christ on the outside, but inside is demonic. And I'm telling you, this passage is going to help you see things you've never seen before. You may not watch some people you've been watching before on places like TBN and whatever else is out there. You may come to this by the end of this and you go, oh, pastor, I did not see such depth of deception. Here's another thing it'll do for you as we get ready to sing that song and close, is you're going to come away and you're going to have people in your life that you know are caught in this stuff. And we're going to work hard at how to speak the truth in love. I promise you. Through this, I'm going to help you. That's my goal. But I also want you to pray for them. Pray even now. Maybe, maybe they need to watch a sermon, a set of sermons like this. They'll maybe go in and watch. Ask God to help you because I know every one of us, I know it's in our family as well, there's people who are caught up in antichrist. 
And we want them to see the true and living Christ. We want them to experience the true filling of the Spirit of God who unites them to Jesus in his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just a, a sweet time in one verse. There's just so much to learn, Lord. There's so much to see that there is a great difference between the pagan world and the Christian world. The pagan world is controlled by the one who works in the sons of disobedience. Hmm. Satan and his followers, or followers want to control the minds and hearts of the unredeemed. They have carte blanche, they're family members, they have the right to them and they control them. But then there's those, Lord, who have a form of religion, have a form of godliness. Paul writes to Timothy that way. They have a form of it. It's outward, it's not inward. And yet those people are led a captive, they're led away. They're they're, they're led to places they don't want to be, but they don't have your son. They don't have the spirit of God. They don't have the word, the true word. And they end up doing the work of the evil one. And so, Lord, we have to be careful. We do not want to use your church for the evil one's purposes, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that you would cause Riverbend to be dedicated to the word of God, the clear expository, exegetic word of God. We study it in depthly. We hold it to its context and to its literal and historical and grammatical meaning. Lord, it's so important for us to do that. And so, Lord, I beg that you would hold us elders, pastors accountable, hold our church accountable, because that's the best thing we can give one another. And Lord, that's the work of the Spirit. He spotlights Jesus in the word in our lives. And so, Lord, we'll give him a clear path. We'll, he, will, he will have the way, his way here, Lord. That's what we want. And Lord, people of the Bible are not sad and mopey people. We're excitable. We get wound up about our God and our Savior and the work of the Spirit. It, in, it enthuses us, Lord. It encourages us. It brings love and joy and peace and patience and so forth into our lives, Lord. And so, Father, as we go through this study, may the fruit of the Spirit be evident in our lives for your glory and for the good of the common good of the church, Lord. Lord, we want to sing one more time to you. Will you hear this from us, Lord, from our hearts? In Jesus' name. Amen.